Can we thank Brian for that? And if you have your Bibles, would you turn on or turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're taking verses 7 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. And I hope this morning you had plenty of caffeine, you brought lunch, you brought dinner and a sleeping bag, because we're going to be here for a while. And we're accommodating those people who come in an hour late so that they can get that next hour of the message. And so this morning, I actually, I think I went a little overboard, but if if it goes too long, we'll just split it into two weeks. And really, I think why the Spirit impressed on me so much to study this week was because it is so practical. As you know, we're in Second or First Corinthians 12 through 14, and that's the life of the Spirit in the church, and primarily this morning, spiritual gifts. And this morning's message is all about us the body of Christ, and the gifting of the Holy Spirit, the the spiritual empowerment that he, the Holy Spirit, gives to each and every believer. And so it's a very practical message. And I want us, as we are going through the word today, to really be thinking about where do I fit in in all of this. And so if you're an outline taker, it's a very simple outline. Verse 7 is the purpose of spiritual gifts, and we're going to quickly cover that. In verses 8 through 12, we're going to look at the partitioning of spiritual gifts. How does the Holy Spirit distribute these gifts to the children in the church? And then in verse 11, we're going to look at the prerogative of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that it is by his will in which we are gifted and what that means for us. So without further ado, let's get into 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and starting at verse 7. Now, Paul writes and he says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for, and what's the purpose of spiritual gifts? What does the rest of that verse say? The common good. So why does the Holy Spirit give us gifts? For the common good. That means brothers and sisters within the church, and then that means unbelievers outside of the church. God, the Holy Spirit, equips you and I for the common good. Now, pray tell, how does that actually express itself in real practical life? How does the common good actually work itself out? Through us doing what? Reaching out. How, how does the good work or the common good, darn, I just gave the answers out. How does the good, common good work itself out through the life of the church? Through good works. Does that make sense? As we do good works, common good is then being distributed or spread out. Look at that word manifestation in verse 7. And that's the Greek word to disclose. Now, what does the word disclose mean? Like, let's say a public company on Wall Street discloses their earnings report. What does that disclosure entail? Share the information. And specifically, it's private information that has been made public. So the manifestation of the Spirit for good works or good, the common good is the good works working out publicly in the life of the believer. That's the manifestation of the Spirit. Jesus put it this way, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How does your light shine? 
through good works. And that is the common good for all people, both in the church and outside of the church. Last week, we talked about the parable of the talents. You remember that? The the master who is Jesus gives talents to his servants, his slaves, and then he goes on a long journey. And what does he expect of his servants? To take those talents and do what? Multiply them, use them, exercise them. And those that do that, they are called good and faithful and those that buried the talents those that didn't use their their gifts and their abilities and their resources Jesus calls them wicked and lazy you are lazy and wicked servants now immediately after that teaching the Lord goes into another teaching and that's found in Matthew 25 verse 34 he gives another illustration of goats and sheep And he says to the goats, go on my left side, and to the sheep, go on my right side. Now, what differentiates the goats and the sheep? Look at verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, those are the sheep, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. What separates the goats and the sheep then? Good works. Blessing those, helping those, doing and exercising your spiritual gifts for the common good. So what is the purpose of the Holy Spirit giving us spiritual gifts? The common good through good works. So let me ask you something. If you aren't exercising your spiritual gifts, how are you being any good? Something to really think about, right? We're not saved by good works, but true faith works. True faith works. And when we work and we, we uh, testify and we really disclose the Holy Spirit in our life, we are exercising our gifts for the common good. Now the question then is, what gifts do I have? And that leads us to our next section, the partitioning of spiritual gifts. And so in Bible college, we were taught very specifically how to teach the Bible. And it was in three major steps. You had observation, which is what do I see? So you go and you underline every verb and you go and you define words and you take, you know, pronouns and all the, all the stuff. And what do I see? Then the next step is what does it mean? And that's the interpretation. And that's the context is what does this passage mean in its context? And then the last step is application. What does it mean to me? How is this relevant in the life of the church today? Now, this morning, we're going to actually go backwards, and we're going to look at application first. And the reason why we're doing that is because for the first and only time, I want you to be selfish. I want you to be self-absorbed. 
And I want you to ask yourself through this entire sermon, where do I fit in? Where is my place? What has God called me to? And so the application, I have a few questions for you. You can jot down. I also have them on the slide. I want you to ask yourself, number one, what spiritual gifts do I have? Now, some of you say, I know exactly what I have. Boom, 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 X, Y, Z. This is what God has gifted and empowered me for. I know without a doubt. Others of us, we don't know. We're, we're kind of in limbo. We're, we're may not be entirely sure. And so for us that aren't entirely sure, be asking yourself the question as we go through these gifts, what has God gifted me with? Or what areas am I gifted in? And so a couple questions I ask myself, and you can ask yourself to answer that question, is number one, what seems easy? What seems easy to me? Typically, when you're good at something, you're gifted in something, it comes easy. When math, which does not come easy, isn't easy or good to me, I know I have no gift in calculus. I know trig, there's, there's, there's no unction there at all. It just doesn't come easy. It's an absolute grind. Other things like public speaking just seems to come very fluid and very easy for me. So when I'm thinking of spiritual gifts, what in my life seems to be easy? If it's easy, there's a good chance you're gifted in that area. Number two, what excites me? True or false? The things I'm good at, I typically am excited about. Right? If I'm good at sports, let's say basketball, I'm typically excited about basketball. I like to be good or ex- I'm excited about things that I'm actually really good at. I'm not excited about the things that are boring to me and I seem to not grasp at all. So when it comes to spiritual gifts, if areas of ministry excite you, they actually, you know, spur a, a, a intrigue in you, there's a good chance that you're gifted in that area. For me, evangelism, going out into to the high schools, into the prisons, into the parks, the highways and byways, and leading people to Christ really gets me going. That excites me. That was the most uh, exciting time of ministry for me was doing that work of evangelism. That is an exciting thing. And because of that, I believe God has gifted me in certain areas. So what seems easy to you? What excites you? And then here's another one to answer the question, what gifts do I have? What have other people said about you? Oftentimes, if you have gifts, they're not only recognized by you, but they're recognized by other people. So sometimes I'll come off stage and people will say, that was a great sermon, that was a great teaching. That's an acknowledgement that I have a gift in a certain area. Every one of us have gifts. And as we exercise them, they will be noticed by other people. So what excites me, what seems easy to me, and what have other people acknowledged in my life? And that's how we can determine our spiritual gifts. Here's number two. What is my calling? Now that I know my gift, ask yourself this morning, what is my calling? How do I get plugged in? 
What is the ministry that God has laid before me? If I see a triangle-sized hole, let's say a journey, and God has made me a triangle, can I get plugged in? How can I get plugged in? How can I exercise those spiritual gifts? So one, what are my gifts? Two, how can I use those gifts? And then here's a word of caution. Have realistic expectations. The reason I say that is because one, you will get disheartened or two, you will get burnt out. When I came out of college, like I had so much hype around me for my classmates and I had this expectation that boom, things were just going to take off and it didn't work out that way. Now, had I held on to those expectations, I would have been burnt out. I would have been, you know, heartbroken. I would have just saw the ministry fizzle out and I would have quit. When I have the realistic expectation that God does not operate on the basis of quantity, but on faithfulness and quality, I understand. And so in your ministry, have good expectations, godly expectations, whether one or one million shows up, whether somebody says thank you or they don't, that doesn't matter. The faithfulness to the calling is what matters. And so have realistic expectations. Now with that, let's begin to break down the, the spiritual gifts and callings of the New Testament. Now we have multiple uh, lists scattered all throughout the New Testament. So we're going to read them. And then like last week, we clumped them into groups. Now these groups aren't divine Holy Spirit inspired groups. They're me trying to consolidate and make sense of all the different groups and where they belong. And so in Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 we read first spiritual offices. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And Christ gave some as apostles, as prophets, as evangelists, as pastors, and as teachers. Now, these are spiritual offices within the church to both lay the foundation and build the church up. Now, as they exercise their offices, these people, along with the rest of the body, exercise spiritual gifts. So here's the first list of spiritual gifts we have in the New Testament. Romans chapter 6, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 6 through 8. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Here's our first gift. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, there's a second gift. In his serving. In he who teaches, third gift. In his teaching. Or he who exhorts, there's our fourth gift. In he who gives, fifth gift with liberty. He who leads, that's our sixth gift, with diligence. And he who shows mercy, that's our seventh gift, with cheerfulness. Now go to our text in 1 Corinthians 12, and we see another list in verse 8 through 10. For to one is given the word of wisdom, there's another gift, through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by the one spirit and to another the affecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues and to another interpretation of tongues. 
Now turn to chapter 12 and verse 28. And this sums up the lists given in the New Testament. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. So as we take all the different gifts and offices in the Bible, I've broken them down into three major groups. You have the miracle gifts, the mentoring gifts, and then the ministering gifts. So let's look first at the miracle gifts. And this is the group that is most controversial in the church today. You have 40% that say they're dead. You have another 40% that says they are alive and well. And then you have about 20% of Christianity where the Christians say, I'm kind of on the fence. I don't really know one way or another. So these are the most controversial of the whole list. And we begin first with the office of apostleship. God gave first to the church the office of apostles. Now, we can parse that into two parts. We can talk about the office of apostleship, and then we can talk about the works of an apostle. And so the office of apostleship, is it alive and well today? I believe this is an office that has ceased. And there's a few reasons why I believe that to be true. Number one, the requirements of being an apostle. Anybody know what they are? What are they? So they've been with Jesus. What else? There's some very specific ones in the New Testament. They, yep, they perform miracles. What else? So here, here's their, the list from the New Testament. One, they have seen the resurrected Lord. In 1 Corinthians 9, 1, Paul says, and he's, He's advocating that he is an apostle. And he says, have I not seen the risen Lord? And are you not the fruit of my labor? So we see one and two. One, you have to have seen the risen Christ. And two, you have to be a church planter. The apostles were called to be sent out. Now, when you look at all the disciples, Jesus told them and he says, I, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And one of you is the devil. Speaking of Judas Iscariot. So we see Jesus specifically calling out the apostles. And then in Acts chapter 9, he says of Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, you are my chosen vessel. So one, you have to be specifically chosen by Christ. Two, you have to have seen the risen Lord. And every one of the apostles saw Christ post-resurrection. Here's another one. You have to be a church planter. You have to be there planting the church of God. Number three, you have to perform many signs, wonders, and miracles. In Acts 2.43, it says, and they were in awe as they witnessed the signs, miracles, and wonders being performed at the hands of the apostles. Now, when you get to 2 Corinthians 12, chapter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, and verse 12, you see this truth. Second Corinthians. Is it first Corinthians? I'm like, where is this? No, second Corinthians 2.12. Is that not correct? Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. No, it's not. I might have put the wrong one. Anyway, when we find it, this is what it says. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders 
and miracles. So the apostleship was accompanied with all of these truths. Now, what was the purpose of the apostleship when it comes to building the church? What were they? They were the, when you think of a structure, what's the most important part of the structure? They were the foundation. Now, the church is 2,000 years old. We're still not working on the foundation. That was for the apostles and the prophets. Now, when you take, go and you take the larger scope of apostleship, we see a guy named Junius. He was an apostle. There was a guy named Barnabas. You've heard of him. He was an apostle. There was Paul's other son in the faith, Titus. He was called an apostle. And so you see other people in the New Testament labeled as apostles. And what was their work? They were church planters. So the office itself is dead, but when you think of the work of apostleship, we would think of it today as church missionaries. Those who go out into foreign lands where the gospel hasn't been preached, where there's no churches, and they go, they preach the gospel, and they plant churches. So if that floats your boat, if that gets you excited, if that's something that is like, oh, I really want to do that, then possibly God has called you to that element of missionary or church planting, a work that the apostles did have their labors in. Now we go to group number two. This is another, or verse, and gift number two. This is another controversial one. This is the gift of healings. What's the gift of healing? The supernatural gift of healing others. We saw Jesus do it in Matthew chapter four, verse 24. In Matthew 4, verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, pains, demonacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. In Acts 15, Peter's shadow would pass by somebody who was sick, and they would be healed. The gift of healing is a supernatural, instantaneous work of the Spirit. So if you have a headache and I pray over you, and two hours later it goes away, that is not the gift of healing. If you are paralyzed and I pray over you and you get back surgery and you can walk again, that's not the gift of healing. The gift of healing is an instantaneous, supernatural act that restores the person back to full health. Luke, who was a doctor, would describe this gift. And he would talk about the paralytic man whose bones were, were bowed and deformed and how Christ would heal him and he was back to his right self. That's the gift of healing. It is a supernatural work of the Spirit. Now, the, sec- the third in this group is the gift of miracles. What is the gift of miracles? This, these are events that transcend the natural laws of our world to give evidence and credence to God. The gift of miracles then is to work in a supernatural way that is observable to natural man. How does this differ from the gift of healing? It's everything but healing. So casting out demons, making someone blind, walking on water, turning water to wine, These sort of things are supernatural. They break the natural world's laws and they are performed primarily to give credence to God. If you turn to Acts 13, we see a work of, of, uh, of Peter, or I'm sorry, of Paul in Acts 13 verse 8 through 12. 
And here's a man, and it says, but Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translating, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make the crooked, make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who had led him by the hand. Notice how it was an immediate supernatural work. Now look at verse 12. Why did Paul do this? Then the proconsul believed when they saw he, what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Why was Paul exercising that miracle? To give credence to the teaching of the Lord so that people would believe the gospel. And so why do we not see miracles and signs and wonders and healings to the extent that we see them in the Bible? One reason is because we don't think of the Bible as a very long book. It goes from creation all the way to eternity future. And even if we just take creation to today, think about when most of the miracles were happening. They were happening in three specific time periods, and they all have to do with very important redemptive history. Number one, go all the way back to the book of Exodus. When was the events when we saw many, 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 many miracles? Ten plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the wandering in the wilderness, the pillar and fire by night. We saw the water from the rock, the snakes, and then the healing. We saw the, the manna from heaven and the quails. Supernatural, supernatural, supernatural. What was God doing? He was implementing his law. Very important time in redemptive history. And then what happens after they get into the land? The miracles seem to fade off. And then they, they catapult, catapult, they catapult again during the time of Elijah and Elisha. What was God doing? He was transitioning away from the judges and transitioning into the words of the prophets. And we saw the raising of the dead and the multiplication of food and these incredible miracles taking place. And then they dip off for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years until who comes on the scene? Jesus and his apostles. And the miracles spike again. What is God doing then? He's transitioning away from the old covenant and into the new covenant. And then they dip off again. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't work miracles and that God doesn't heal, but he uses his miraculous power and healing in providential ways. For example, when David slayed Goliath, that was a miracle, but it wasn't a supernatural miracle. A man killing another man with a rock is not supernatural. It's within the confines of the natural law. 
So why doesn't God work miracles and signs and wonders? Why hasn't any of us raised somebody from the dead or multiplied food or multiplied our bank accounts supernaturally? Why? Because God doesn't need to. The word has been given. The foundation of the church has been laid. And we don't need to operate in that manner anymore. Now, is there going to come a time in the future where God picks those miracle gifts up again? I believe so. And we can read that in Revelation. So we go from healings and miracles, and we're moving on to the next part of the gifts of the, of the miraculous, and that is the gift of tongues. What is the gift of tongues? It's the ability to speak, praise God, and speak before um, in a language that you haven't originally known. And so we see these truths in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1. And it gives us insight into the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So the gift of tongues, you can either speak in a human language or what language? A heavenly language, the language of the angels. And so I have seen people exercise this gift. I've seen people speak in the tongues of angels, and I've seen people speak in the tongues of the natural man. It's very unique. It's very interesting. I'm actually gifted in this area as well. And so it can be exercised, and I've seen it exercised. I've heard stories of people speaking in tongues and telling others to not get an abortion. And they don't know the language that they were speaking, but the other person on the recipient, the receiving end did. And so we've seen, and there's multiple, multiple, multiple accounts of people speaking and exercising this gift of tongues. And we see it first in the New Testament. Anybody know where? Acts. Yep. Nope. There, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came down and what was the manifestation or the disclosure of the Spirit? How did they exercise, what gift did they exercise? The speaking of tongues. So if you go to Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as, this, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galilean, Galileans? And how is it that each hear them in our own language to which we were born, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors of Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in their own tongues, speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued with amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does it mean? 
But look at verse 13. But others were mocking, saying they are full of sweet wine. And this I've seen is a very divisive gift. Because on one end, you have people who overuse the gift. And you have people on the other end saying, these sound like babbling fools. They sound like drunkards. And it's a shame that the Pentecostal church and the charismatic movement have went on record and said, if you don't speak in tongues, then you aren't saved. If you don't express the manifestation of speaking in tongues, then you're not really sealed by the Holy Spirit, which is a shame because the proof of the Spirit in your life is holiness and obedience, not necessarily speaking in a tongue, which is a graced gift that the Holy Spirit distributes as he wills. Now, it's interesting because the gift of tongues is actually proof to unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians 14, 22, it says, tongues are a sign to unbelievers. However, when speaking in tongues, there must be an interpreter present and no more than two or three, which leads us to our next uh, gift in this miraculous group. And that's the interpretation of tongues. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, verse 28, and verse 30. What is the gift of interpretation of tongues? This is being able to hear a foreign tongue and be the mediator and translate. So it might be the tongue of angels and it might be a human tongue. This is the ability to translate those tongues. Now, why do you think interpretation of tongues is better than speaking in tongues? Anybody know? It validates it to whom? To the church, right? When I speak in tongues, I have this amazing peace and this joy when I'm done. Almost like when the giver gives, they have this self-satisfaction. When the servant serves, they have this self-satisfaction. When I speak in tongues, I just have this, this satisfaction in my soul, but it has no edification, meaning there's no building up. I have no idea what I said. But if there was an interpreter who then translates into English, then it now builds up and it's understandable to all. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, Paul writes, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. So when we speak in tongues, it should be in groups of two or three and no more speaking, and there has to be an interpreter or else there's no edification. In some churches, they have people just rambling on and they look like psychos. They look like they've been drunk with sweet wine. There's no interpretation and there's no building up of the body at all. So those are the miracle gift groups, and they are the most controversial of the bunch. The rest of them are not controversial. And so we have the next group, and I just labeled them mentoring gifts. Every gift in some sense is a mentoring gift to one extent or another. But just for us to kind of file in our mind, we have mentoring gifts. And this is in our text in 1 Corinthians 12, 8. And it's the gift of the words of wisdom. What is the words of wisdom? It is the ability to speak wisdom into the life of other people for their life events. 
It is to be able to take the Bible and the biblical truths and then be able to impart wisdom to people who are struggling or who have questions or need understanding when it comes to life. If you've heard or seen or talked to people where you you just download all your problems onto them and then they're saying, well, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, and then they give you advice. And that advice is golden. They probably have the words of wisdom. Now, this is not a relative, relevant, not relevant, revelatory gift, meaning the charismatic church, they have taken the words of wisdom and they say, thus says the Lord, or God says, or God told me to tell you, and then they begin to ramble on. That is not the words of wisdom. Why? Because the Bible tells us the Bible is sufficient. There is no more need for revelatory truth. Everything here is what we need. The words of wisdom is taking this truth and then being able to apply it in a wise and practical way. Now we go to the next gift. Also, how does this apply to me? If you have a history of people saying you are so wise, if you have a, a history of people saying, man, you really know how to take the Bible and, and make it relevant to my life, or you've really given me advice on how to deal with the struggles of life, if you've had people tell you that in the past, there's a good chance that you may have that gift. Now we have the words of under, or the words of knowledge. Anybody know what the words of knowledge is? Oh, I think I have it up there, don't I? Darn, never mind. It's to take the meat and the real deep things of the word and understand them and then be able to communicate them in an understandable way. There are some Christians, and I would say like John Calvin is definitely one of them, where they would ruminate and they would meditate and they would chew on the word on the complex matters and then be able to put them down on paper or be able to teach them to others. There are some Christians who just have this incredible ability to think about the real deep things of God and then translate them to other Christians. If you've been told that you have a real deep understanding of the Bible and you can communicate it easily, you probably have that gift of knowledge. Now, the next one is the gift of faith. And remember, be asking yourselves what questions as we're going through this. What were the questions on the application? What gifts do I have? What is my calling? What are my gifts? What are my callings? What are my gifts? What are my callings? As we're going through this, do I have this gift and how can I use it? Do I have this gift? How can I use it? Faith, to exhibit extraordinary amounts of trust in God throughout all of life's ups and downs. Now, all believers have been given the gift of faith for salvation. Remember, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We've all been given the gift of faith for salvation, but there are unique Christians who have been given almost a double portion of faith to be able to trust God in extreme matters. For example, Hebrews 11, we have the hall of faith. There's a guy named Noah. Anybody remember Noah? Monique, how long did Noah build the boat? You know this because... I said this a few months ago, and you knew the exact year. 
Okay, it took 120 years to build this boat. And the whole time Noah was building the boat, what is what was he doing in the meantime? He was building and he was doing something else. He was a preacher of righteousness. In other words, he was calling people to repentance. God is coming to judge the world. God's going to judge the world. God's going to flood the world. There's going to be this thing called rain. And in Genesis, before the flood, it never rained. There was no such thing as the sky dribbling water. And so here he is saying the sky is going to dribble water. They're saying he's a nutcase and he's building this boat and the whole thing's going to flood. How many converts did Noah have in that 120 years? Zero. He had his family and they were just tied to him. So they went along with him. Imagine 120 years building a boat for an event that has never happened and having zero converts. And yet every day he put nail in wood, nail in wood, nail in wood. That's extraordinary faith. There was a guy named Abraham. His name originally was Abram. And then God says, I'm going to call you Abraham, which means father of many nations. And you're going to have a child and he's going to be a promised child. And yet here Abraham was old as all heck, way past the years of having a child. And the Bible says, and he believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You're going to be the father of many nations, but I don't have kids and I'm too old, but I believe you. And Abraham is known as the father of faith. Now look at Paul, the apostle who also is exercising this incredible gift of faith. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul went through and then his understanding of his trials. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I've received lashing from the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night in the, and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers amongst false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, apart from such external things. There is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Then you get to chapter 12 and he had a thorn in the flesh, which was what? Who put that thorn there? It was a messenger of Satan to buffet me. He had all these things going on and then he had this thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, this demon that was bothering Paul and tormenting Paul. And this is his conclusion in chapter 12, verse 10. Therefore, I am well content in weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You want to talk about faith. Go through all that and then come out and say, I still got Christ. And that's all that matters. As long as I have him, I have strength. Here's the next 
uh, gift in our gift of mentoring gifts. And that is the gift of discernment. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10. Now, the gift of discernment is the ability to differentiate between God's truth and heretical teaching or false teaching. These people have an incredible gift to understand the Bible and then to hear a message or hear teachings and then be able to decipher, is this true or is this false? Now, everybody is called to be diligent when it comes to uh, understanding the spirits. All of us are called to discernment. Remember the Bereans? They tested the scriptures to see if Paul, what was Paul, if Paul, if what was Paul, goodness, if Paul was saying it was true. Now in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into this world. So we are all called to discernment. So what is the gift of discernment? It is that gift of testing the spirits elevated. They are like the Gandalfs of the church. You shall not pass. They're the gatekeepers. They are the ones that say, no, 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 red flag. This person, this teacher is not speaking the truth. They have a a real strong discernment, a real strong intuition backed with real strong biblical understanding. And so they're able to call the fake from the truth. And they're really important within the church to keep the church on the straight and narrow. When we start going off outside of scripture or start twisting scripture, the church can really begin to sway left and right, right off the path. So we go for mentoring gifts. Here's the third group ministry gifts. And so Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 breaks it down into two, speaking and serving gifts. So the first speaking gift we have in the ministry gifts is the gift of evangelism. Now there's three times in the Bible, the the Bible uses the word evangelist. The first is in Ephesians 4.11. And God and Christ gave to the church first apostles and prophets, and evangelists, and pastors, and teachers. The second one is in Acts 21.8. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. And in 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul is writing to Timothy, saying, But you be sober in all things, and do hardship, Do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry? Those are the only three times it's used in the New Testament. Now, are we all called to evangelism? Yes. Go out into all the world and make disciples. That's the process of evangelism. But we're not all called to be evangelists. The office of an evangelist are those who go out and have a knack for leading people to the Lord. It can be a one-on-one or it can be like uh, Billy Graham where he speaks before hundreds of thousands. And in Korea, he spoke to one million people in, in one live event. The greatest evangelistic move in human history as far as numbers are concerned. 
So you can be a Billy Graham and that's on the extreme side of evangelism or you can be an evangelist and you're ministering to one to two to five unbelievers. The evangelist is the one who spreads the good news and calls people to repentance. Now, why that's a unique office is because it takes unction. A pastor, the audience is primarily made up of Christians. An evangelist, the audience is primarily made up of non-Christians, unbelievers. And so as you can see, the evangelist can go before a very hostile work environment, but they are called to preach the gospel and bring people to the Lord. The next group that we have are the, are, is the office and the gift of prophecy. Now there's an office of the prophet and then there's a gift of prophecy. And just because you exercise the gift of prophecy doesn't make you a prophet. Now the prophet, does that office exist today? I would argue no. And this is why. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What was the office of the, of the prophet and the apostle to do? Build the foundation of the church. You see, before the Bible was written, the apostles and the prophets spoke on behalf of the Holy Spirit to give divine revelation. When the Bible was completed and scripture was sufficient, there's no need for that. And we see this transition happening, and it's very fascinating. We see the transitioning happening in 2 Peter 1. So if you haven't been turning, I do suggest you turn to this part. And this will show you that the office of the prophet has been transitioned into the office of teaching within the church. Second Peter 1, verse 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What was the holy mountain event he's talking about? Nope. Nope. The Mount of, it starts with a T. Transfiguration. You remember Peter and his brother and Jesus, they go up to this mountain and Jesus glorifies before them. And then God the Father, just like at baptism, said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Who else was on that mountain? Elijah, which represents and... Moses, which represents the law. Remember how we talked about miracles, signs, wonders, and healings happened at very specific moments of redemptive history. There on the transfiguration, you had Moses, the law, 
Elijah, the prophets, Christ and his apostles, the new covenant. And so he's saying, you can trust our word because we were eyewitnesses to this glory. And then in verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, chapter two, verse one, super important. And I want you to look at that transition from prophets to teachers. But false prophets also arose among the people. Now, the word among in Greek is past tense. He's saying back in the old covenant, back in the days, false prophets arose. Now look what he says. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. And is that past, present, or future? Future tense. He's saying in the past there were false prophets. In the future, there will be false teachers. And that's the transitioning from the office of the prophet to the office of teacher. Now, does the gift of prophecy still hold today? Yes. But because you prophesy doesn't make you a prophet. They were for building the foundation of the church. So what is prophecy? It's not foretelling, meaning I'm telling you the future. It's foretelling. I'm telling you the Bible. Now, where the prophet, the gift of prophecy differs from teaching is it's more like preaching. And the person who exercised the gift of prophecy is revealed by the Holy Spirit intimate things about people's hearts. And look at chapter 14 verse 24 and 25, and Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 24 and 25. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. They give verse 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. What is the word disclosed? To make something private? Public knowledge. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. There was a guy, anybody heard of Charles Spurgeon? He was a powerful Baptist preacher in the 1800s. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of recorded times where he's exercised the gift of prophecy from the pulpit. He's preaching, and then he'll turn to somebody and say, you. Now, there was this one time a young man was wearing gloves and he stopped this sermon dead in its tracks and he pointed to the young man and says, you need to repent, you thief, for you have stolen those gloves from your employer. Now, that young man spent the whole day trying to sit down with Spurgeon and when he sat down with them, he said, sir, I don't know how you knew, but it was the first time I've ever stolen and you cannot let my master nor my mother know. Here are the gloves, please return them. There was another time he was preaching, stopped dead in his sermon, and he pointed at a man and said, you, sir, have sold your soul for money, for you opened your shop on the Lord's day, and all you made last week was seven pence. And a news reporter there in the congregation later that week went to the shop owner's store, and he said, sir, how do you know Spurgeon? He says, well, I know him because he's a pastor, but he's never met me. 
And then the man says, well, is what he said true? And he says, unfortunately, yes. Last Lord's Day, I opened up and it wasn't worth it. All I made was seven pence. These are times when the spirit simultaneously gives unction to be able to see into the heart of men. There has been times at this church, I remember talking to a gentleman outside. I was walking with him and out of nowhere, my mouth says, are you done watching porn and smoking weed? When are you going to turn and repent from that? Had no idea. And the man's jaw dropped to the floor. These are times when the Spirit gives special unction to be able to see into the hearts of men. And it's primarily happening from the pulpit in the times of preaching. Now we go to the next gift, and we see this is the office of teaching. Now we know teaching well. What is teaching? It means the Greek word to didact. So dia, the proposition D-I-A, means thorough or straight through. So a diameter or a diameter, what is that in, ge- uh, in uh, not geography? Geometry. You see how good I am at math? What is a diameter in geometry? It's a line that goes straight through. Didactic teaching is thorough teaching that goes straight through. It is from A to Z, line upon line, precept upon precept. That's the gift of the teacher. They are called to thoroughly teach the word of God, rightly dividing the word of truth. So ask yourself, am I called in this area? Am I gifted in this area? If so, get teaching. Now we have the next gift, and that's Romans 12, 8. That's the gift of exhortation. The gift of exhortation is to motivate and encourage others in the way of the Lord. I said last week, I believe Vince is very good and has the gift of exhortation. Rosemary, who's very cut and dry, black and white, even shook her head and was like, yeah, he does. So that just affirmed what I said was absolutely true. My wife is also someone who has the gift of exhortation. She put winds in your sail. She puts fuel in your motor. She's able to just really push you along in the Lord. She doesn't cut me down. She doesn't break anybody down. She's always uplifting. She's always uh, provoking in the correct manner and always pushing people towards God and doing the right thing. It's an incredible gift. There was a man named Barnabas. His name, Acts 4.34, literally says, the son of encouragement. What do you think Barnabas was gifted at? Encouraging. We see in Acts 13, verse 42 and 43, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them next Sabbath. Now, when the meaning of the synagogue had broken up, Many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. That is the, the definition of exhortation, to urge people to continue on in the way of the Lord. The next one is pastoring, and this is an office of the church. What is a pastor? Oversee the flock tend to the flock practically, lead the flock of God by example, teach the flock of God by feeding them the word and protecting the flock by keeping away false doctrine. Now in the New Testament, there's many different terms. They're all the same office. For example, in 1 Timothy 3, we see the word overseer. 
Now, what's an overseer? An overseer is a pastor, and an overseer is an elder. And that Greek word is the word where we get Presbyterian. Anybody heard of the Presbyterian church? It comes from the Greek word overseer, 1 Timothy 3. Then we go to Titus chapter 1. And in Titus chapter 1, we see the word elder there. And it's where we get the word um, Episcopalian. Anybody heard of Episcopalian? That's where we get that word elder. And then in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, or, or verses 1 through 3, we see elder, overseer, and pastor all used interchangeably. He says, therefore, I exalt you elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Pastor, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. There's our word overseer, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God but proving to be examples to the flock. So a pastor is an elder, an elder is an overseer, an overseer is a pastor. Called to feed the flock, tend the flock, lead the flock by example. Now we get into the serving gifts. And first one is service. What is the gift of service? This is both practically and spiritually helping people out. If we go out into the parking lot and you see somebody with a flat tire, the teachers are probably going to be like, doo, 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 doo. didn't see, didn't see that at all. Those gifted with service will be the first ones. Where's your jack? Let me, let me get that tire off for you. So on and so forth. If they see the grasses and cut, they're the first ones to say, let me get the lawnmower out. If the pool's dirty, they say, let me get out there and clean the pool. These are the people that have this incredible ability to do the mundane tasks and never whine about it. They don't need a trophy. They don't need a pat on the back. They are able to serve the Lord faithfully without any complaint. And we see the gift of service throughout the New Testament. One example is in Romans 16, 1 and 2. And he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, who is which is at Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. This to me is one of the most beautiful gifts in the church because these people oftentimes never get credit this side of heaven. But guess who gives them the credit at the, that side of heaven? The Lord. You see the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists and all those people, they get praised by men, which is taken away from that eternal fruit. The servants, they are faithfully doing the mundane tasks, whether it's cleaning toilets or vacuuming, and they get no credit for it typically, and yet God will give them a plentiful, a plentiful harvest. Now we see the gift of mercy. We're almost done, folks. Keep, stay with me. Now we have the gift of mercy, which is being, or the gift of mercy, which is identifying those who are in need physically, emotionally, mentally, and being able to help them in their time of need. Mercy is being compassionate towards those in attitude and in action. And in Romans 12, 8, it lists the gifts of mercy. And it says those who have that gift are to do it with cheerfulness. Why do you think the gift of mercy should be done with cheerfulness? When you think about it, 
when the gift of mercy is being applied, what situation is it typically being implied in? Applied in a good situation or a bad situation? It's usually a very bad situation. And that person is usually downcast, sorrowful, hurting, whether it be a divorce or a loss of a child or a loss of a job, a loss of a spouse. That person's in need. And here the person with mercy comes and they are to do it with cheerfulness because that's what the other person needs. If the gift of mercy was a part of the physical body of Christ, they would be the shoulder which people can cry on. These are the people who have the unique ability to download other people's sadness and sorrows and then be able to comfort them in their time of need. Now we have giving, being liberal with their physical resources to further the work of the church. Now this is having joy in giving physical resource. The church at Philippi, they were so giving that God, that Paul would write and says, my God shall supply all your needs according to their riches and according to his riches and mercy in Christ Jesus. Was the church at Philippi rich or poor? They were super poor. I mean, they were broke as a joke poor. Paul even writes to them and says how you gave out of your own necessity, meaning they didn't have food, they gave food. They didn't have enough money, they gave money. They didn't have enough clothes, they gave clothes. And because of that, God will supply all their needs according to his riches and mercy. Now, when you go to 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, I'll read it to you. Paul is talking about the churches at Macedonia. Now, Philippi was known as the Rome of Macedonia. And this is to what he writes. Now, brethren, we may, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches at Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of their affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberty. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave of themselves to the Lord and to the will of God. So some people say, when I'm rich, then I'll give. No, you won't. Period. Some people say, when I retire, I'll serve. No, you won't. You, you are what you are right now. And the, the gift of giving is to be able to give no matter your financial situation. And you do it with joy. You do it hilariously. You do it with a cheerful heart. Now, this is the last gift. Some of you are saying amen. Other of you are like, oh, no. The gift of administration. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. This is the ability to organize, promote, and lead within the church. These people have an incredible ability to delegate, to communicate, and to organize within the body. In Acts chapter 6, there was this major issue going on. If anybody remembers, there was the, the Hebrew widows, and then there was the Greek widows. And what was happening? They were not being treated equally. And so there was dissension within the church. And they were going to the apostles. It's not fair. It's not fair. And the apostles said this. We're not going to neglect the word of God to serve tables. In other words, we're, not, we're, we're over here. And we're not going to deal with these minimal mundane issues within the church. So what did they do? They exercised the gift of administration. And they said, raise up seven faithful men filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And let them deal with it. 
And that is the exercise of administration, to be able to delegate, to be able to lead, to be able to organize the church so that the the players can stay in their rightful positions. Imagine taking a pitcher and making him a catcher. It just, it doesn't work right, right? Everybody in their rightful positions. The lead, the person that has the administration is able to move the chess pieces in the church to make things function well. And now we'll, we'll finish with this. Verse 11, the prerogative of the spirit. <clears throat> but one in the same spirit works all things, all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Who is, whose will is it by which you get your giftings? The Holy Spirit, which leads to two thoughts. One, if you have an amazing gift and you have an amazing calling and people are pumping you up, there's no room to boast because who gave it to you? The Holy Spirit. You have no room to boast. On the flip side, if you say my calling so small, my gifts seem so insignificant, you matter because who gave you that gift and those calling? The Holy Spirit. And you matter enough to him to equip you for the work of ministry. So whether big, medium, or small, it doesn't matter. The source and the calling is all from the same person. And we are called to exercise those gifts accordingly. Amen? Amen. So as we went through those, hopefully you were thinking to yourself, what is my calling? What are my gifts? And where can I get plugged in? Now, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, come up to me. If you say, look, I believe I'm gifted in this area. Where do I fit? We'll get you plugged away, whether it's in this body or some ministry outside the walls. The, the onus now is on you. What is your calling? What are your gifts? Amen. All right, let's pray and we'll get into communion. Father, we. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.